Hello and welcome to this special bonus episode of the Battleground Podcast. I'm Saul David and today Patrick Bishop and I are going to respond to many of the comments and queries you've sent in about our recent Falklands War series. And we're also going to play an amazing piece of audience that was recorded during the war and that's been just sent in to us. Okay, let's get started. Um, The first uh, message we've got was an email uh, and it said, uh, nice comment to begin with, from Craig Hawkes. And it said, love this morning's podcast. You're both doing a cracking job with the series. I had a question regarding the role of British Special Forces in and around Stanley, both before and during the war. I've read some very uh, minor mentions of them getting in amongst the Argentines during the initial invasion and to stir up a bit of trouble Blue on Blues during the occupation. I've read several books about the campaign, but very few touch on their activity in Stanley itself and would love to hear your thoughts. Patrick, do you have any comments about that? Um, The SAS and the SBS were inserted uh, well before the landing at points all over the island on East Falkland and West Falkland and in in locations where it was felt the enemy might be present. Uh, What they're doing there really is doing a job that the traditionally would have been done by the RAF, that is getting, you know, real on the ground uh, information, uh, which would have been gleaned from uh, reconnaissance flights. But we didn't have that capability. It was just too far away. And the harriers that we did have in the area weren't equipped to take photographs. So it had to be done in a kind of pre-modern age way of actually getting eyes on stuff on the ground. So that's what they were there doing. Yeah, I mean, Craig mentions the blue on blue. I mean, there was one infamous uh, moment where the SBS apparently sort of stray into the SAS territory in terms of patrolling on, on East Falkland uh, and one SBS soldier is shot and killed. Um, you know, so that was a tragedy that can happen, unfortunately, in war. The question more generally of why Craig hasn't heard more detail about special forces operations, uh, you know, goes down to the, the, the question of a murder, doesn't it, Patrick? I mean, but the question is, who's actually keeping this a murder? Special forces still can't talk about their their operations, even 40 years ago. Um, the most I've been able to get to in terms of my SBS book was 1948. Um, so everything after that is pretty much, you know, held under closure. And it's only when people break ranks like Sir Peter de la Villiers did uh, after the Gulf War that you get some of these books. Uh, and generally speaking, those who do speak out uh, will be PNG, that, in other words, persona non grata, and will, you know, not invited back to the regiment in, in effect. So that's why we don't know much about them. But we did have, as, as we flagged up earlier on the podcast, two SBS operators speaking for the first time about what, about what they did. So I suspect there'll be more of that in the years to come. And it certainly strikes me, Patrick, that 40 years is long enough for special forces operations uh, to be kept secret. Yeah, I can't see that there's much of a security risk involved there. Um, I think they've made a bit of a rod for their own backs with this uh, ethos of of, uh, of secrecy because, you know, they want to be able to tell their stories like everyone else does. And there are ways of getting around it, as Sir Peter de la Billia, uh found. Of course, that kind of opened, I wouldn't exactly say the floodgates, but it certainly there was a steady trickle of, of uh, stuff that technically shouldn't have been allowed Thereafter, I just want to get back to the, the subject of the efficiency of, of, of patrolling as a means of of getting information. And I'm afraid the answer is that it's not that efficient uh, because for the simple, obvious reasons of the restrictions, all you've got is your eyeballs, essentially your binoculars, to see what's going on. 
and you get a very restricted picture. So I know that some of the battalion commanders in the Falklands weren't terribly impressed by the quality of the SAS information they were getting back. They were more complimentary about the uh, intel from the SBS because I think that was more tightly focused. It was on things like the condition of beaches. Was it possible to actually make a landing here, etc.? But the miscalculations of numbers was a thing, feature we've seen throughout the story, isn't it, Saul? Yeah, absolutely right. And and of course, it could have had real consequences. Uh, you know, the attack on Goose Green, we talked about the estimates of numbers there, you know, were probably, they thought it would be relatively similar numbers. There was actually a three to one disparity against. And and the same thing going into some of the battles for Port Stanley itself. I mean, we, we heard about the uh, the, of course, the brutal fight uh, that the Scots guards do on Tumbledown, and they expect many fewer people uh, on top there. So, yes, it could have had a real consequence. Right, let's move on. Uh, second email. Uh, this is a, a, a another nice uh, comment from a guy called Pete Snowden. Much enjoying the series, apart from having to wait for a week for the next Monday, which is nice. He would like uh, us to be talking more frequently than once a week. Are you going to cover the medical story of Commander Rick Jolly and others? Uh, and his last comment is, you may be interested to know that the story of Tumbledown is used in graphic detail to inspire the Scots Guards in their infantry training at the bayonet lesson exercise. Looking forward to hearing your take on it. So uh, do you want to comment a little bit about Rick Jolly first, Patrick? Because that is a bit of the story we've missed out. And it is a remarkable tale of the Falklands War. Yeah, I I do regret that we didn't actually uh, take a look at that because it was a fantastic story, a great achievement. Rick Jolly, larger than life character, you know, terrifically inspiring man. He was on the Canberra on the way down. We, We all got to know him well. Uh, and once he got ashore, of course, he set up the famous uh, red and green life-saving machine in the, the disused refrigeration plant in Ajax Bay. Pretty sort of grim environment, um, but it did a fantastic job. Um, I visited it a few times. And I remember actually uh, going there just after an Argentinian pilot had been brought there, having ejected uh, from his fast jet over over San Carlos water. And... I was very impressed by the way that the Argentinians were given exactly the same treatment uh, as everyone else. I think they even made a, a sort of special point of of, of being extra kind of uh, caring and attentive and kind to them, essentially, um, to quell the fears which had been instilled uh, by some of their commanders in them that they were up against this ruthless foe that were probably going to do them harm once they actually fell into their clutches. So that was all very good. And, of course, part of the... Uh, the drama was that uh, at one point a bomb uh, lodged in the uh, I- in the Ajax Bay facility, unexploded bomb. We're going to come on to that a bit later on. Um, and so they were working for some of the time with, with the thought any second the whole place would just go up with a huge bang. Um, but that didn't deter them. Incredible uh, camaraderie, incredible kind of esprit that they... They all showed, and they did a fantastic job patching people up before then sending them off to the hospital ship, uh, Uganda. Yeah, and, and just re- re- addressing the the issue of the the Scots Guards. I mean, that that isn't that that's fascinating, isn't it, Patrick? Still used today, the attack on Tumbledown uh, in their bayonet training. I mean, you 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 referred at the time to the fact that this is very much a Second World War battle, but you can see that the sort of aggression that's needed both from platoon leaders uh, and and junior NCOs to keep the men moving forward is absolutely vital to the training of the British Army today. And it's, and it's 
fascinating to me to realize that they used that very iconic battle, uh, you know, to get them up for it. Okay, now uh, we addressed a couple of questions before, which uh, we've had follow-up uh, messages about, and that was the derivation of the terms uh, tabbing and yomping. Now, uh, we've got a quite an interesting uh, suggestion for both of these, and they may well be correct. Uh, this came in from Bob Maycock, and, and he says, on the subject of tabbing, I'd always understood that it stands for tactical advance with Bergen. Uh, and not tactical advance to battle. I'm not entirely convinced about that one, that one Bob. Um, I, I think it's tactical advance to battle. Uh, but we also got a follow-up on the yomp, which none of us were, were, were sure about. Uh, and actually, this came in from one of the SBS operators who said, I'm pretty sure it means your own marching pace. Have you ever heard that before, Patrick? No, never heard that one. It sounds, uh, <laughs> dare I say, it, a little bit technical does it your own marching pace and it kind of wouldn't make much sense because if you decide that you're not going to keep up with the guy at the front then very rapidly the column will be extending over several miles so um i don't know it's a thought though it's a thought it's a good one okay moving on um another very nice comment about the podcast this is from gr and he said uh, on my twitter feed thanks for the podcast the whole series has been excellent the interviews have been particularly interesting Will you be able to make the full-length versions available once the series is finished? Also, do you have any plans to cover other conflicts in future series? Well, we've already addressed the first question uh, in our previous episode, which is we are moving directly on to the Ukraine. As for the full-length versions, um, we do have one or two we haven't played at all. And one, interestingly enough, which sort of intersects with uh, Patrick's comments about the uh, red and green life machine, um, that is a bomb disposal expert who was tasked with defusing the bomb that was lodged there, uh, gave a wonderful interview, uh, and we'll be playing that in full in a future bonus episode. So those are the responses to those two. But thank you very much for, uh, for the uh, query. Another comment, uh, Andrew Hooper, avidly listened to every episode, all brilliant, so compelling, so well researched and produced, presented by a fantastic double act. I'm, I, you know, I'm blushing as I hear this, Patrick. Timely interspersed with eyewitness reports. A magnificent tribute to all the brave men, many of whom uh, were the same generation as me. So it's good to hear comments like that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but that's, that's really the, the, the highest uh, praise without kind of, you know, I'm getting too big-headed about it. Um, I, I think we we were really very chuffed to get such positive responses from the people who were actually there. Um, just want to get back to the question of a, a further series. Uh, yeah, we are definitely doing this Ukraine thing. It's obviously going to be uh, slightly different because it's a it's an ongoing thing. But I think uh, there's a huge amount of um, interest in in the kind of nitty gritty of the war and the big picture as well which we're not getting from uh, conventional media at the moment, as often happens. Uh, the initial kind of saturation coverage doesn't take long to fade. And so I'm now scrabbling around just from you know conventional newspapers and, and television news to find out what the hell is going on there. And I, I get a sense that quite a few people share that frustration, don't you, Saul? Yes, absolutely, Patrick. I mean, you know, I personally find it a, a little bit confusing as to what's going on at the moment. The news this morning, um, uh, Luhansk has been uh, effectively handed over to the Russians. So things are happening on, on, on the ground and we're not getting that much detail. So we're going to try and drill down a little bit 
into this. We're going to try and give a summary, frankly, of what's happened in the previous week, but also to talk to some interesting people. We won't, as Patrick says, be able to go into quite the same uh, forensic detail as we have been able to with the Falklands War. And that's, frankly, the difference between current affairs and history. Uh, but we hope that our contribution will, you know, will make a real, uh, will give a real insight, frankly, into what's going on and will fill a bit of a gap, uh, which both of us feel is there. Okay, so moving on to other comments. This is from Helena Heisett. I also found the episode, that is episode, uh, that's the uh, Sir Galahad episode, uh, interesting but confronting as well. Interesting, she says confronting, meaning quite difficult to, to deal with some of the material we're talking about. You know, I think that's the point. If, you, if you're talking honestly about war, uh, some of it is tough to, to listen to. It is fascinating, she went on to write, to listen to the veterans talk about their experiences. You can still hear the trauma in their voices, even after all these years. Veterans need significant and ongoing support. Love the pod. Great, yeah. Um, well, you're absolutely right about uh, the truth that PTSD never really fades Um I've become friendly with a guy who I didn't know uh, who at the time, but uh, I've, I've met since, who was a private soldier there in the parachute regiment. He rose through the ranks, ended up a lieutenant colonel. And um, even after all that time, he was a, he was a you know, bold soldier back in the day, uh, one of the most aggressive uh, powers you'd wish to meet. Um, very, you know, easygoing, happy-go-lucky sort of bloke. But, you know, he's he's quite open about the fact that he's he's life has been periodically blighted by PTSD ever since. He's very vocal on the subject. He's a campaigner on the subject. So, you know, that is very much a real thing. Um, on, the, on the Galahad thing, it's still a, you know, a very, very sore memory after all these years. Uh, there's still a certain amount of, of you know, controversy and, um, you know, blame apportioning and all the rest of it. And again, you know, I think, um, you know, the passing of time, does something to soften uh, these memories. But uh, I think it'll be a long time before it ever goes away. Okay, this is from Matt Rowe. This is another one coming into my Twitter feed. Absolutely fantastic podcast. The whole series has been gripping. I hope when the Falkland series is over, you can pick another topic and continue. Well, we've answered that response, but thank you, Matt. Uh, this is from Lydia Jane. I've listened to lots of podcasts and watched and read a lot of stuff about the Falklands War over the last few months. But this podcast... Uh, with the two of you is staggeringly good highly recommended thank you so much Lydia uh, we appreciate your comments um, Do, does anyone say anything nasty about the podcast or is <laughs> I, I filtered I filtered those ones out Patrick. there were there were one or two um, well let's let's have a honestly I'm joking I, you know listen you and I both know you can't please everyone all of the time and I haven't had a single highly critical uh, uh, comment about the podcast one just maybe the odd odd thing about we 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 would have liked to have hear, heard from Argentinian voices and I think you know we should address that now actually Patrick because you and I and Matt who's our fixer who uh, we gave a good shout out to uh, in the last episode you know, made sterling efforts to try and get the voice from the Argentinian side. But sadly, um, there was no one who was actually prepared to to stand up or at, the, or at least we could contact and speak to us about that, which is, uh, frankly, a bit of a shame, isn't it? It is a shame. I mean, I recently made a, a documentary about the about the Falklands, which went out on Channel 4 in March, when we did manage to find uh, a couple of Argentinians who um, were, you know, very happy to talk, actually. Um, and... I have to say that what they came up with was not 
really terribly illuminating. I, I was really interested to hear uh, how much thought they'd put into the conflict subsequently and a bit about their personal experiences. But it was quite sort of propagandistic. It was largely uh, this rather kind of, you know, dare I say it, sort of Latin American sort of rather macho approach to the whole thing that that this was all about our honour and uh, the Falklands belonged to them. They were the less middle Venus. Um, and it wasn't actually terribly illuminating. I'm not say, saying for a moment that there aren't loads of people there, particularly, these were officers, you know, particularly among the conscripts. I'd love to hear from them. But uh, I'm sure that they would have had something rather different uh, to say to what, their, to what the officers were saying. But it was just, I'm afraid, beyond... Our resources, but it is it is something that uh, I feel is a gap in in the series. Okay, uh, this is from Simon Thompson. Excellent podcast, by the way. My question is, uh, and it's actually two questions: How close was the operation uh, to failing because of one, the approaching Arctic winter, or two, operational factors such as insufficient supplies, ships, aircraft requiring maintenance, etc.? In other words, if the task force had left one week later. Would the outcome have been different? Please answer this. It would make my day. Patrick, what do you think? Well, I think uh, you're absolutely right there. That uh, It was the biggest enemy ultimately was time. Um, time because of the weather. The, the, the conditions were day by day getting worse uh, to the point where they would have been unbearable. And secondly, time because of the wear and tear uh, on particularly on the fleet, on the men on the ground, sure, but particularly the fleet. You know, being out there in the South Atlantic after a couple of weeks, all everything starts, things start going wrong uh, on a regular basis, and trying to a distance of eight thousand miles to keep up any kind of maintenance program would have been impossible. So I think you'd have seen a day by day uh, a reduction in the efficiency. Uh, of the every aspect of the task force to the point where it became impossible to maintain our presence there and we'd have had to have come home. I think that's what the Argentinians were banking on. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it, to realise after after the event, we, we discover that the original Argentine plan is to invade later in the year and actually they're bumped into it by the South Georgia crisis. Um, it's it, And the plan, of course, is to force us to respond during their winter when, in effect, we wouldn't have been able to respond. So, you know, it, 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 it was a factor. Would a week, which was um, Simon's question, have made a difference? I'm not so sure a week would have made a difference, but you certainly get the sense from the commanders down there, Julian Thompson and everyone else, that, you know, time is of the essence. That's why he was so determined to crack on. That's why the whole business of 5th Brigade became so controversial, because it, in effect, slowed up the land campaign. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right, yeah. Uh, I think, a, you know, a week, maybe not, but a fortnight, perhaps. Yeah. Okay. So we've got another question. This is a different Simon uh, this time. Uh, question for the podcast relevant to Falklands, but came to mind when reading your uh, your great, uh, in inverted commas, SBS book. Are all Royal Marine Commandos and are all Commandos Royal Marines in the UK forces? I guess the follow-up question is, was there a change between the Second World War and the Falklands? Now, it sounds like a complicated question, but actually, I think the answer is reasonably straightforward. Is this right, Patrick? If you're a Royal Marine, you're also a commando now. There are, the two are, are sort of interchangeable. But it wasn't always the case, because as I explain in my, in my book, um, commandos only begin during the Second World War. And during the Second World War, there was a distinction between Army commandos and Royal Marine commandos. Now, only the latter exists. Is, is that correct, Patrick? I, I think that's the answer. 
Yeah, you've got, I think you've got it spot on there. Um, commandos of various forms have sort of been around. Oh, the idea of a commando starting as, well, most recently in sort of, was um, in South Africa in the Boer War, which is, I think, where the, the modern uh, iteration of it developed. The idea was sold to Churchill early on. There were, well, you know this very well, so there were in, independent companies and they become commandos. Uh, they have these training centres up in, uh, in Scotland, Inverilot and uh, elsewhere. What's what was it? I've got the name of Achnacarry, Achnacarry Castle. That's the great, that's the great trading base. Great, worth a trip, actually. It's, it's terrific fun. They've, they've, uh, they've sort of kept quite a lot of the old, uh, well, enough of the infrastructure for you to get an idea of what it was like. And, of course, it's like a, you know, a, a natural training area. You've got sort of rivers, mountains, all sorts of things you could exhaust yourself. Sounds hell oh. to me. <laughs> There's a great story actually about the uh, about going ashore uh, on in Dieppe uh, when when four commando went ashore. Um, they were you know, immediately met by all sorts of you know machine gun fire and mortar fire and uh, and uh, someone piped up and said, "This is even worse than Agnes Carey." <laughs> <laughs> It should give you a sense of how, t- how tough it really was. Great stuff. Okay, here's another one from James Collier. Congratulations on a really well-produced and insightful podcast. It was great to hear the perspective of so many veterans from across the ranks and services. And while we, we do regret uh, missing out on the Argentinian perspective, um, we were very keen, weren't we, Patrick, to make sure that this wasn't just, you know, upper middle class voices uh, and that, that we would hear from from all the ranks and all the services but anyway the the, the questions uh, that he asks are, are interesting prior to the conflict what were the assessments of our likelihood of success both within the mod and amongst our allies i'm sure i read somewhere that a pre-war usmc that's obviously the marine corps u.s marine corps study predicted that it was odds on we would fail to retake the islands do you know anything about that patrick yeah but this is this is referenced uh from time to time about this uh, U.S. Marine Corps study, what, quite why they would be doing it, I don't know. But, yeah, I've, I've come across it, but I've never actually managed to locate the study. But it's not really rocket science, is it? It's sort of pretty obvious that projecting force uh, that distance with the resources that Britain had at that time was going to be problematic. I think the, the thing was that it was just about doable, and it was at the last point uh, in recent military history, given the steady decline in, in numbers and resources, that it was possible. Yeah. Okay. He's got a second second quote. Well, in fact, he's got three questions. The second one's also also interesting. How close a run thing was it? Well, we've just uh, dealt with that, but he he goes into more specifics here. What would it have, it have, what would it have taken for us to fail? For example, a number of task force vessels were hit, but the bombs. Uh, but these bombs did not de- detonate for various reasons. Had we lost a handful more frigates of destroyers, would that have ended the mission or would it have taken the loss of a carrier to really end the campaign? What do you think, Patrick? I think frigates and destroyers we probably could have lived with. Uh, the loss of a uh, carrier would have been much more of a thing uh, because, it's, of course, it's, it's, it's all about air and protection that the carrier-borne harriers could give to the ground forces. So I think if that had been taken out of the equation or a big chunk of, of the air defences uh, provided by the, by the harriers uh, had been removed, then the vulnerability factor zooms up uh, for the, for the uh, land forces. And I think that might, that might 
have tipped the balance. The, the whole question of uh, of air cover, you know, it, it, this was perhaps the biggest single risk. I think is the uh, is the imbalance in air forces, and I think that was probably the the biggest gamble. Something that perhaps um, needs a bit more focus, but uh, that's certainly what what focused most people's minds on the way down when they were assessing the the dangers. Yeah, and I think just to, you know, go back to the we, we addressed the issue of of the near sinking of Hermes by an Exocet missile when uh, of course sadly Atlantic conveyor went down instead. Um we discussed whether or not that could have been a deliberate sacrifice of the uh, the tanker. I, I thought it might have been. Patrick, you, you didn't agree with me, which is fine. We, we're, we're allowed to disagree. But the broader point here is that the carriers were absolutely crucial. So although Woodward may not have deliberately sacrificed it, he certainly was prepared to put uh, pretty much all his other ships in the way, including the Atlantic conveyor, as this so-called chaff wall to protect the aircraft carriers. And while that seems might seem to some listeners quite cold-blooded, it seems to me a completely logical uh, use, uh, sadly, in war. You sometimes have to sacrifice or at least put at risk other, uh, other elements of your, of your kit uh, to save the more important ones. So, um, you know, to me, that would have been a perfectly legitimate uh, use of, of other kit. Of course, it's not so easy for the, the families of people who die on those other ships to accept that. But that seems to me something that's always happened through war. Okay, now the third part of the question from James Collier is what was the legacy from the conflict in terms of any major changes in UK military doctrine, strategy, tactics or procurement? Obviously, a lot of the planned cuts were halted or reversed. But otherwise, did we just go back to training and preparing for the same set of Cold War missions? Patrick, what do you think? Um, do you know what, do you know what, James? I don't, I don't know the answer to that one, except in the broadest terms. I think uh, we did pretty much. Well, one thing that did happen was that there was certainly a feeling among the Marines afterwards that had it not been for the war, they might well have uh, ended up on the scrap heap. They might have been one of the major casualties of the ongoing. Uh, program of uh, shrinking the the British armed forces. So that was one thing you can say came out of it. The Marines survived and and went on to prosper. Uh, In terms of, I think it would have been, I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud here, but I I think that it would have been pretty bizarre to um, have any kind of re-tilting of kind of future predictions about what kind of wars we might be facing in future on the basis of this one very bizarre war. It was uh, an anomaly, an anachronism, etc. I mean, this is always the case, of course. I mean, who would have known that we would actually, uh, a couple of decades uh, later, be be fighting guys wearing flip-flops and carrying AK-47s, that all our military resources would be going on to uh, fighting this extraordinary uh, sort of asymmetric wars in Iraq and or post Saddam Iraq and and Afghanistan. So yeah, I mean, as far as I'm aware, we just kind of went back to to our sort of NATO Cold War posture, which of course was about very soon to become come to an end as well. Yeah, I think it's also worth saying though, Patrick, there were very real changes in terms of the sort of long term uh, determination to keep some kind of air stroke sea power. Uh, as part of the British Armed Forces. So, 
you get a situation now where we have these two huge aircraft carriers, very controversial. Not everyone agrees with them, particularly if you're not in the Royal Navy. But I think the the Falklands taught us you need to prepare for all eventualities. And, and given the nature of the two conflicts we've recently fought, you might have imagined that that was going to be the future of warfare. So that also tells us, doesn't it, Patrick, with the Ukraine conflict now, you need to have kits that can be used in multiple different types of ways. And my personal feeling is that the aircraft carriers, although they cost an awful lot of money, actually will serve us very well. And in a war against uh, Russia, for example, if it ever comes to that, we hope it won't in terms of a hot war. Uh, that's exactly the sort of thing you need. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, with the military, you can never say never when it comes to procurement, because, you know, five years ago, uh, investing huge amounts of money into fast jets uh, would seem to be perhaps a sort of the wrong way of using your, again, you know, always uh, heavily pressurized resources but now fast jets uh, they're they're pretty good things to have you know so it's a terrible procurement is it is a terrible uh thing to to have to be responsible for because you're almost always going to get it wrong you can absolutely not predict the shape of, of future wars okay here's a question from matthew um first of all he just wants to say how much he's loved the recent falklands podcast it's been really fascinating uh, his question is how did the paras and commandos as well as the special forces survive on those mountains for such a long period of time in episode 12 you touched on how most people would have been hospitalized with exposure but these guys not only survived but then they went and fought the battles after that it's astonishing i understand these are tough men and they go through rigorous training but in a practical sense how do they actually get through it did they exercise to keep warm? Did they have decent shelter? Were they kitted out with adequate enough clothing? I mean, great questions, uh, Matthew. And Patrick, you were in the mountains. So how on earth did everyone survive? Uh, the answer, Matthew, is I really don't know. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. It was just so miserable. Uh, the tent issue, as, as civvies, you know, we were saying, well, where are the tents? Where are the tents? There are no tents. What you do is you make a bivy, out of a poncho, which was a kind of supposedly waterproof cape, uh, and you know any bits of wood you could find lying around, which of course were practically non-existent in the Falklands, and bits and pieces of kit, you know, entrenching tools, and with that you kind of rigged up um, this you know pathetic little shelter uh, over a shell scrape that you dug uh, to protect, give yourself a little bit of minimal protection from Argentinian chilling. Of course, as soon as you uh, stuck a spade into the very uh, thin topsoil uh, uh, on the Falklands. It filled up with water. So it was uh, incredibly miserable. And the uh, the actual kit itself, boots, it all comes down to boots in the end. Our boots were rubbish. The DMS boot leaked. Uh, it was st- The sole was incredibly stiff. Uh, and after about a couple of, if you were wearing them for the first time, after a couple of, of miles, you were practically crippled. Of course, lots of guys have made their own provisions. They had their own boots, brought their own boots. The Argentinian boots, as I've said before, were much, much better. The actual quality of the clothing was pretty lousy as well. Um, so not very waterproof. Some of the officers had brought their barbers with them, which served them much better than the, than the, um, kind of outer covering the uh, outer clothing that that was sort of standard issue so i think it basically came down to incredible fitness and morale so uh, these guys were just kept going with uh, with the fact that they were you know physically very tough mentally very tough 
and that that terrific sort of camaraderie that uh, means that the weakest or the anyone the most vulnerable at any given moment is going to get massive support from the guys around him. Okay, this is from Damien, slightly off topic as it is a battleground podcast, but it would be interesting to know how the news media were reporting the events, what they knew, were allowed to report and so on, particularly with journalists on the ground. Excellent podcast, Ian. So uh, that's obviously a question for you, Patrick. I, I think we've answered some of that in the in the episodes, but if you could just go into a little bit more detail about the challenges you faced uh, reporting from, you know, what was really a cl- sort of closed circuit in terms of you getting information out. Entirely, yeah. So there's about kind of 30 journalists uh, there, all British. There's only one international uh, news outlet, which is Reuters. It was uh, a chap called Les Dowd from Reuters. Everyone else was from either BBC, ITN, uh, British National, the Sunday newspapers, uh, regional newspapers. So um, an entirely British affair. Um, The first thing you've got to mention is that it was there was censorship in place. The Ministry of Defence sent down some civilian officials who were meant to look after us, the minders they were known as, not always affectionately. Uh, And they were meant to basically uh, kind of manage us, but also to censor our copy. So what they were looking for uh, was anything that gave away any operational details at all. This could be very widely... Let's start by saying that none of us was interested in giving away... Uh, stuff that was going to be uh, of any use to the enemy because we were obviously going to be uh, in the firing line um, if they heard it and acted on it. Uh, so, yeah, we were perfectly happy to go along with that. Unfortunately, it was kind of some of the minders were more liberal and more intelligent in interpreting those parameters than others. Um, the the a huge problem, of course, was it, the actual business of getting your stuff out. So if you wrote something... Uh, you then had to to leave where you were to get back to one of the ships to send it off, having been censored uh, via uh, the SAT communications. That meant you then had all the hassle of getting back to where you, you had been. So it was you had to think long and hard before you took that that uh, decision. But the other thing, of course, is that everything was pooled. So everything that everyone wrote was available to any news outlet who wanted to use it. So the element of competition, which is very, very strong, uh, in journalism, uh, was not really so present there. Um, now that's that's the perspective from where we were. Uh, you couldn't, you could only really write about it all. Uh, in my case, write or broadcast. In the case of the others, uh, when it was all over, and there was plenty of great stuff that came out then. From the perspective of people operating in London, the the, le- the, the two big leaks that really uh, drove people uh, to enraged people on the ground. Uh, well, the main, let's talk about the main one, um, was, of course, the Goose Green, the giving away the fact that the Goose Green uh, attack had begun even before it had actually been launched. So if that wasn't a breach of security, I don't know what was. Now, that didn't come from any of us down in the Falklands. That came from uh, someone, strangely enough, who picked it up in a London club. Uh, some politician had turned up for lunch at the club uh, it, it was dropped, uh, the fact that the goose green operation was uh, mistakenly said to be underway. In fact, it hadn't quite started then. And that was uh, picked up by a BBC reporter who blithely went on to to broadcast it. Astonishing now that the BBC would do that. Uh, it was a real security risk. It really did potentially endanger 
lives. Uh, and that, as I say, caused uh, understandable fury among the people out there. Okay. Um, now, n- another comment. This is from an Ollie Ford. Uh, enjoying the Falklands podcast, why didn't the naval gunfire batter Mount Longdon before three power went up it? Rather than when they were on it, the element of surprise was never going to last. Um, do we know enough about the detail of Mount Longdon to answer that question, Patrick? I mean, I, I would have assumed that there was a certain amount of softening up from the naval gunfire even before uh, they went in. But is that the point? It was a, it was a battle of surprise. Well, there certainly was a surprise element, um, in, as indeed there was in, I think, in all the uh, mountain battles. But I'm afraid I can't answer that question, Ollie. I, I mean, there certainly was naval gunfire directed at Longdon, but when it came in, how that decision was made, I'm afraid I don't know. Okay, now I've got a, a quite a detailed one here, and I'm not sure we're going to be able to deal with all of it, but uh, some of the comments are very interesting. Um, really enjoying your Falklands War podcast. This is from a Rob Barash. As a veteran of the Israeli Defence Forces, I wanted to point out that it's not axiomatic that conscription makes for poor soldiers, as the major participants in World War II uh, would testify. Um, There are a few key factors to making an effective conscription-based fighting force, though I never made it past sergeant, and I'm neither a military historian nor a a military affairs analyst, so I could be full of rubbish. Uh, But he's got a, a couple of questions that I think is worth addressing, actually. Do the conscripts believe in what they're fighting for? Um, in other words, if they don't, uh, that doesn't help. And I think we could probably say that was uh, that was true for some of them in the Falklands. Is conscription uh, relatively universal? Uh, are conscripts suckers who don't have the money or connections to get out of the draft, e.g. Donald Trump and his infamous bone spurs? Or as in Israel since 1948, it is almost universal. So again, it, it, the question is, morale would be affected if you feel that you're, you're the ones doing the fighting because of your sort of poor economic circumstances. Um, even if the military relies on conscription, says Rob, are combat units filled with people who want to be there? Even though we're all conscripts, the IDF's frontline combat units are filled with soldiers who asked to serve there. So he's constantly using the IDF as an example of conscript soldiers that worked. Uh, the question is, do they work in all cases? And I think you and I both agree, Patrick, in the Falklands, probably for some of the reasons um, Rob's pointed out. He also talks about training, how effective, how effective is training uh how long your service is uh it helps of course if the service is longer not short uh, and lo- and final comedy makes a lot is made about the role of long-serving professional ncos in nato militaries and i'm sure they're excellent but our ncos who were only a year or two older than us were fantastic and our junior officers were excellent too so some interesting comments there about rob uh from rob uh patrick what do you feel i mean clearly that some conscript armies are better than others aren't they yeah, there are conscripts and conscripts, and of course, um, with the uh, IDF, you know, the Israelis, uh, you know, it's, it's a vital part of citizenship. So um, I think that's uh, definitely uh, at the top of the uh, of the scale of um, you know commitment and professionalism and so forth, and of course, you know, morale and and esprit, very vital elements. You certainly didn't have that in the case of the Argentinians. So I think the, you, there are two opposite ends of the spectrum if you're comparing the IDF to the poor old Argentinians. Um, yeah, it's, um, it, it's really the, the, the strength of the contract, I think, that the, the state has with its con- conscripts. In the case of, the, of Israel, of course, it's very, very strong. In the case of Argentina, it wasn't at all. 
what you get is a sense, very, very strong sense that we referred to before, disconnect between the officers and the men, which uh, is only going to create inefficiency. Now, I got a fascinating email from someone called Rich Jackson, who messaged me about his father, who was a veteran of the Falklands. Uh, he was serving on Hercules in the RAF and, and the Hercules that were assigned to special forces. So we're back to special forces here. Uh, and he points out uh, in his original email, followed up by an email from his dad, uh, giving some of the details of the operations he was on. And it's really fascinating stuff. Uh, Patrick. Basically, he was assigned to the mission that was going to take out the uh, Exocet-bearing aircraft, that's the Super Etendard, in uh, on the ground in Argentina. I mean, this was a mission that, you know, we know, historians know, was aborted, but it actually was going to go ahead. And he, he gives some fascinating detail. Um, his job was, uh, you know, to get the rear ramp down as quickly as possible. Now, you know, normally they went down re- reasonably slowly for obvious reasons, uh, but he devised a way where you could just drop it and just go bang. And of course, the importance was the guys get off as quickly as possible and they can get back on as quickly as possible. And very much reminds me of my Entebbe book, uh, Operation Thunderbolt, where the Hercules came in. Very similar operation and undoubtedly would have inspired the SAS actually to doing this. Um, the reason that doesn't go ahead, even after he's been given a bollocking by his boss not to uh, use this quick release mechanism, is because uh, they have problems with, with, well, first of all, they're told that they, you know, they're stopped as they're about to take off. But a, sem- a similar operation he talks about is stopped because of in-flight refueling issues. So there were all kinds of, of madcap missions that the SAS were going to launch from Ascension that uh, uh, Rich's dad was involved in. Harvey Jackson is his name uh but that they were you know fortunately i suppose in some cases uh stopped because of, of various technical issues because uh the body count i suspect would have been a lot higher if they actually had gone on those missions patrick do you know anything about the detail of any of those i don't but i do know uh that the forces to an extent is a kind of playground for uh, special forces so they've they've got this um you know, a unique opportunity to try out all sorts of, as you say, madcap ideas. And I have heard uh, various stories, and we've heard stories from some of our contributors that we didn't broadcast about some of the things that they were asked to do. Do you remember the helicopter pilot who was asked by uh, the SAS uh, whether uh, the helicopter could hover over a suspected minefield and the SAS team uh, climb onto the helicopter at the back, walk down the length of the helicopter, and then disembark <laughs> while it was hovering over the rifle on the other side. You know, I mean, this is sort of like, you do think, well, uh, hang on a minute. Um, but there was clearly a lot of that going on. Okay, we're going to take a quick break now. And when we come back, we've got a real treat for you. It's a bit of audio from the last air raid against uh, British naval ships of the Falklands War. And I promise you, it's pretty dramatic. Welcome back. Uh, a few more questions now. Here's Carl Reed, uh, and he asks us, why didn't the UK invoke Article 5 of the NATO Treaty after the Argentine invasion, as the US did after 9-11? Patrick, do you have a thought about that? Well, you know, that's a really, really interesting question to which, once again, I have to say I don't have a specific answer. But of course, Article 5 is an attack on one, is an attack upon all, which I think the Falcons would have met that criterion. Um, And I can only uh, speculate that it was 
because of the peculiar nature of the conflict. This is very much a British thing. Um, it's a, 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 it's very much framed in a sort of colonial uh, setting. So it would be pretty hard, even though technically it might meet the criterion, it's pretty hard to argue that an attack on a little island, some little islands, many thousands of miles away from uh, the rest of the kind of NATO sphere, uh, it really presents any kind of threat to the common security. There's, of course, the other element is the colonial element, isn't it, Saul? You've got this very much, sorry, the post-imperial element. So, you know, Britain's very sensitive about this charge which is being made by the uh, Argentinians that this is really kind of 19th century uh, problem they're trying to resolve. Yeah, for sure. And, and you, you've got the complication with the Americans in, in South America. They very much see the Argentinians as a bastion of uh, anti-communism. Uh, and this was going to make it very unlikely, frankly, that they were going to respond to a request from Article 5. And it may be that alone, actually, which discouraged us from doing so. What we did do, of course, is, is uh, make uh, great efforts, successful as as it turned out, in the United Nations for a condemnation of the invasion. So that was a diplomatic coup. Uh, but the chances of getting NATO fighting on side in self-defence, in inverted commas, I, I think were frankly pretty unlikely. So they didn't even bother trying it. OK, now we come to a really fascinating uh, message from uh, someone called Stan. Well, Will Stan Bowles, of course. Uh, you know, these nicknames the military all, always give each other, uh, in this case, relating to the famous 1970s footballer. Uh, but he was, um, uh, this is, you know, really fascinating. I was serving as a mine clearance diver on the fleet clearance diving team during the campaign. We were based on the Tristram, then intrepid in the thick of it. The divers are the Navy EOD IED operatives, um, you know, the bomb disposal, basically. And so were employed in making safe UXBs, unexploded bombs, amongst other tasks. Having been only 90 metres from the antelope when a thousand pound bomb was embedded in her uh, and then detonated, I have witnessed the impact of air dropped weapons on the enclosed spaces in a warship. Many ships were struck with 1000 pound bombs that failed to detonate Antrim, Argonaut twice, uh, Glasgow Broadsword Plymouth uh, times four times, and the Antelope. All the LSLs, with one exception, were struck by bombs in San Carlos. As you know, these LSLs carried a huge amount of kit. Had these weapons detonated, the damage and casualties would have been awful. The Plymouth, having been struck by four bombs, would have disintegrated. Likewise, the Argonaut. I could write much more. Please understand that although pleased to have contributed, this is not a shout out for the divers, but a suggestion that the war would have looked very different if not lost had these weapons detonated. For an insight, you may wish to Google RN Divers Falklands War for a nine minute BBC feature with myself and my oppo, uh, Tony Groom. And I would absolutely recommend looking at that. Now, it's interesting because we continue this conversation. I responded and said, thanks so much for your email. I spoke with one of your colleagues, a, a guy called Piggy Trotter, who helped to remove the unexploded bomb from Sir Lancelot. It was too late to include in the main body of the story, but we'll add the whole interview as a bonus episode. So that's going to follow on from this bonus episode, probably. Hopefully, this will remind people of the absolute vital work that you and the other divers did in the Falklands 
I take your point about the fortune of so many bombs not exploding and will read out some of your email, which I've just done. Now, his response was also interesting. He goes on to say, the Navy was alarmed but content fielding UXBs, which lasted only until broadcast by the BBC. Patrick referred to this, of course, before. Thereafter, the bombs were fitted with retard fins, slowing them down in flight and thus allowing time for them to become fully armed. Not ideal. As you, as you said, luck plays a massive part in war, really, we should have been smashed. Um, Patrick, what's your feeling about that? I mean, it was a close run thing. This was a question asked before by uh, another of our, our listeners. Uh, was this, you know, the difference between those bombs exploding uh, because they were dropped at, at, at low level or not really the crucial difference? Well, I don't think it's possible to say that with any any kind of authority or accuracy, but certainly life would have been a, a hell of a lot harder if those badly, wrongly fused bombs uh, had been set correctly. Uh, there'd have been a lot more carnage in San Carlos water, a lot more lives would have been lost, lost a lot more stores and kit would have gone down. It would have made the, the job uh, of the land forces uh, immeasurably harder, but it didn't happen. Uh, and um, as we all agree, you know, luck is, is uh, incredibly important. And, and the the balance of luck, I think we can say, was on the British side throughout the whole campaign. Even though many things went wrong, a lot more could have gone wrong. Yeah, that, that bit of information that Stan Bowles gave about the retard fins is fascinating, isn't it? Because we, we'd always been led to believe, historians have always been led to believe, that actually the Argentines just dropped their bombs from a slightly higher height. And that gave them the chance to arm. But they actually found a technical solution that allowed them to keep coming in at low level, uh, which, of course, was much safer for their pilots. So fascinating stuff. Thank you very much, Stan, uh, for that. And I think we've saved the best till last here, Patrick, because this is not only a fascinating email, but also uh, an amazing bit of uh, audio which was sent with it. Uh, And this is the email from a man called John Hughes. Uh, Many thanks for a very enjoyable series. At the, episode, at the end of episode 12, you invited listeners' comments, which is why he's uh, writing in. In 2022, the mass media's focus and the public understanding of the Falklands campaign would seem to be limited generally to Belgrano, Goose Green, the Welsh Guards at Bluff Cove, etc., etc. There would have been no victory without the land campaign, of course, and the availability of TV imagery from ashore will always be significant. But the fact that Operation Corporate, that's the overall name for the Falklands campaign, was overwhelmingly a naval undertaking and a great success for the naval service overall is sometimes lost, I feel. You touched briefly on Stainer Inspector and the repair of Glamorgan, but there is a huge story of endeavour and achievement to be covered in the logistics and support effort, from the initial effort by the uh, organisation to store the task force, the dock yards that converted ships, fitted helo pads and RES points to merchant ships, the RFA, the involvement of, you know, etc., etc., such as the Shell and BP tankers that ferry fuel down to the task force, and the merchant ships that took stores daily into St. Carlos. These stories are never told. Uh, he goes on to say, for your information, you mentioned in an earlier episode that the new CO for two para parachuted into the sea and speculated he was picked up uh, by a small craft. A slow Hercules would have been let nowhere near the islands themselves. He was picked up by Penelope, in which I was a junior officer. Uh, That's HMS Penelope, which was the destroyer, some distance north of the islands. As we all watched him come down, one wag on board said that, as he was an army officer, the next parachute would be for his Labrador. 
Uh, and then we get to the really interesting bit of all of this, Patrick. Uh, great email. On the night of the 13th of 14th of June, Penelope, in company with Cardiff, was escorting Nordic Ferry along the northern coast of East Falkland. We were jumped by some Argentine aircraft and, though the intelligence was not fully conclusive, it is believed that this was the final uh, attack on a Royal Naval ship. Uh, the attached recording made on board that night may be interesting. So we're just going to play that recording because it is quite remarkable. Here it is. Switch on one of these missiles, boys, quick as you can, but safely, alright? Hang on until we get from this shot. Out as quick as you can. Pistols are at the top of this, eh? You know where the toes are. We're in auto auto, we'll be able to get it. Take charge. Oh, in between the exercise. 
Well, that was that was quite something, wasn't it? I mean, what struck me first was the you know, the cacophony, this uh, all round uh, barrage of noise you're getting. But contrasted with that is the astonishing coolness of the voices we hear. People are told to get on with their jobs calmly, you know, arm the arm the weapon, but uh, but don't rush it. You know, do take your time, do make sure it's all safe. You know, that's really quite impressive. I, I found. Um, yeah, a great bit of, of actuality there. But just to get back to to the point earlier that John made about um, about logistics. Yes, of course, it's 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 really unfair the way that uh, the backroom boys, the people who aren't up at the front, who don't attract the attention of the cameras and the the reporters, uh, they they do go unsung. Their their feats are, are not recorded. Uh, they treasure the memories themselves. They know what they did, but. No one else did, and it it was uh, a huge logistical victory. I mean, this was uh, something that could not have been done uh, were it not for the dedication and skill of this army of unsung heroes. So we salute them today. We do indeed. And just one extra bit of uh, information to add. Uh, This came from John Hughes uh, after an email exchange with me. He actually points out that the recording was made by a weapons engineering mechanic, and the chatter that you hear in the background is the team discussing the reloading of the CCAT. Um, so, you know, great stuff. Uh, remarkable bit of audio from the Falklands War. OK, so I think that's all we have time for uh, this week. Patrick and I are going to be signing off for a short time, short break. Uh, we'll play one or two bonus episodes in the interim. And then we'll be back very shortly with Battleground the Ukraine. Do join us. Do join us.